0: listening to The Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with us this hour. So much to get through today. We'll be checking in with Catherine McDonald, who is reporting from Hamilton on the search for suspects after an absolutely unbelievable and terrifying incident in which a seven-year-old was shot. Also coming up, Stephen Del Duca. He is the frontrunner in the race to replace Kathleen Wynne. It odds-on looks like he will win the leadership on March the 7th. It's a delegated leadership, and he was he is in the lead with the most pledged delegates. Of course, being in first place in a delegated convention is largely, the, or, or understood to be, the worst place to be. A discussion with Stephen Del Duca coming up. Also ahead, Desmond Cole has a new book out. The activist and writer talking about a blind spot in Canadian society. How we like to look south of the border and talk about racism and say, well, look at all the problems they'd have down there, but are we willing enough to examine our own systemic prejudice in this country? All of that coming up, but we begin in Peel region, and have you ever had to go to a meeting and you get there and your ex is there, or maybe your former boss or a former colleague who you had a real falling out with is there? and you got to stand there and you got to make nice. You know Oh, it is awkward. It was so so awkward today to see Patrick Brown, the mayor of Brampton, standing alongside Doug Ford. And then you take a look at the calendar and you ask yourself, "Wait a second, I seem to remember something happening on the 24th of January." What happened on this day? Well, it was exactly 2 years ago tonight at around 9:30 that patrick brown held that disastrous press conference at queens park where he addressed allegations that were to be aired by ctv that he had acted inappropriately towards women a number of young women including one who was underage patrick brown was asked about what happened that night today and he's being very zen about it
1: it was unfortunate uh, that. You know, a false uh, report would uh, change the course of our, uh, of our democracy. But, you know, in, in retrospect, everything happens for a reason. Um, and you know, I'm ver- very uh, um, happy to be where I am today. Uh, I got married. I, I had a, a son. Uh, and uh, at the pace I was going, that probably wouldn't have happened. And um, I'm really happy uh, uh, raising a family in Brampton right now.
0: It's the Zen Diaries of Patrick Brown coming soon to a bookstore near you. What happened in the aftermath of that disastrous press conference two years ago is Mr. Brown was forced to resign by his caucus, there was a leadership race, and a guy by the name of Doug Ford won and then became premier. Had things not unfolded the way they had, it's likely that Patrick Brown would be premier of this province today, how does he possibly go to an event with Doug Ford, shake his hand, and not have that consume every fiber of his being? Here again is Patrick Brown.
1: I try not to look backwards. I like to look forwards, and I, I, um, I'm i really enjoying the task I have today. And, and frankly, um, given the adversity I went through, to be able to come through it and have an opportunity uh, uh, to serve and to continue to serve is, you know, it's... Uh, uh, it just it's it makes you appreciate everything.
0: The lawsuit against CTV for defamation, from Patrick Brown, is still underway, winding its way through the courts. I wonder if you take Mr. Brown at his word. He said today, when asked, "Did you realize the date?" He said, "No, I, I didn't. I didn't know until the press told me that it was actually two years ago today that that all happened." Interesting, and definitely a little on the awkward side. Then, Doug Ford took some questions also this morning and was asked about the ongoing labor negotiations with teachers, and I want to play a couple of these for you, because this I think is interesting. What is it that Doug Ford is saying here when asked about what he will do next if there is continued job action by elementary and by high school teachers?
2: There isn't a place I'm going. Even this morning, I stopped over at a gas station. People coming in, do not budge with those teachers. And I'm I'm being frank, I'm hearing strangers everywhere, do not budge. Everyone loves our teachers. They're being treated fairly. They have to make sure they put the priority of the kids and stay in the classroom. That's all we're asking.
0: Don't budge. That's what the premier is saying. People are saying to him, you know, when he's gassing up, people come over, don't budge. Do you believe that that is the sentiment of the province? And what to make of this veiled threat?
2: There's only so long my patience can last with the with the head of the unions. So stay tuned. Cynthia,
3: Cynthia, I'm
2: that? trying to be I'm trying to be fair with with these people. And that's what I look at every negotiation. We have struck so many great deals throughout the province, and it's the same union that has fought with Every government, every premier for 30 years, and people see it. And to uh, be frank, they're, they're getting fed up. Not with the teachers, but the head of the unions. And, and I'll be very frank, a lot of teachers are fed up with the unions. When I talk to them, they said, oh, we're terrified of our unions. you got to be kidding me. You're terrified? I hear it over and over and over again that the teachers want to put this behind us. They're happy. Go in the classroom and teach our kids.
0: If the premier truly believes this to be true, that the majority of teachers in this province Do not support their union leadership, the province is able to put the deal that they want directly to the membership. Go around the union. If you are so convinced that this is true, that teachers, by and large, the rank and file, those that are in the classroom, that they are just, they want to get back to work and they are not in support of their own union leadership, then put the deal to the membership. I want to talk about something else that made news yesterday that is not getting as much attention as I think it should, and that is the fact that a a court ruling yesterday now means that dozens of serious criminal convictions may be thrown out in this province after the province's highest court ruled that a judge erred in implementing a new jury selection rule in a first-degree murder case, resulting in the need For a new trial. So essentially, what happened here is that the federal government went in and changed the rules about how you select a jury. Fine. But then they didn't give instruction to the courts about how to implement the new rules. So last year, when there was a court case where Pardeep Chon, a trucker, charged with first degree murder in a 2016 shooting death of a fellow truck driver, his jury selection Used the new rules. Well, then his lawyers, once he was convicted, and you know how long it took that jury to convict him? One hour. One hour. Convicted. Well, except for his lawyers then appealed it and have taken it to the Ontario Court of Appeal who that said, nope, no, it should have been grandfathered in. You should have used the old jury selection rules, not the new ones. Verdict overturned. This is only one of many cases that may be overturned. Here is Alvin Shadowski, who is a defense lawyer, talking to Global News about where he believes the blame should lie. It's
1: unfortunate that the court misread and applied the uh, the legislation in a very strict and conservative way. And, and, and frankly, the, the fault lies with the courts, for not having yielded a more open um, interpretation to ensure trial fairness of accused people.
0: Now, I was discussing this last night with my wife, who is a journalist currently but is a former lawyer, and I said that this is outrageous that these convictions, and we don't know yet how many convictions, how many families, how many families of victims are going to find out that Whoever is in jail, they're they're going to have to go to a new trial, and they're going to have to start all over again. And I suggested that this is outrageous, considering that this is a technicality. And the former lawyer said to me, a constitutional right is not a technicality. And I think that's worth repeating. The violation of a constitutional right is not a technicality. So, the rules about jury selection, oh, it gets way down into the weeds here, but essentially this is a way for lawyers to say, well, I don't want that juror, I don't want that juror. And there was a case in Saskatchewan, you may remember it, the death of Colton Bulshi. And the jury there, the lawyer was able to use exclusion to keep aboriginal members off the jury, and the government said, well, that's wrong, we want to change that. And so... I don't take issue with the change of the actual implementation, the actual process. It's the question about why was there not guidance? Why was there not guidance to the courts about how to implement it? And how is it that we have gotten to this position? And what does it mean for those in jail convicted of very serious crimes who now will have their trials Uh, Their convictions, rather, overturned and forced for a new trial. Does that mean they are going to be walking out? Here again is Alvin Sheldowski.
1: If they were released on bail in the first instance, then they'll be uh, eligible to to have a bail again while they await their trial. Uh, If they were held in custody for whatever reason and not eligible for bail, this appeal won't make them eligible for bail then.
0: How much is all of this going to cost? We're talking about new trials for an unknown number of very serious cases. Our court system is already backlogged. And our defense lawyer guest that you heard there put much of the blame on the courts, but I will go further. It is the federal government that wears this. It is the government of Justin Trudeau rushing towards trying to make equality and justice for all better, not Doing the homework and not getting it right. And today, there are families in this province who have already suffered, who are now wondering is that convicted killer going to walk free? Thank you so much for joining me. Who will be the next leader of the Ontario Liberal Party? On March the 7th, Liberals will pick their next leader in a delegated convention in Toronto. And on Focus Ontario, we have been talking with the candidates for that job. And this week, a former Liberal cabinet member and former MPP for Vaughan, Stephen Del Duca. Welcome to Focus. Great to be back. You are leading in terms of delegates, but in terms of a delegated convention, sometimes being the top runner can be the worst place to be in. Can you win this on the first ballot? So I, I don't look at it that way. We, we started campaigning very early on.
4: It's been about a year of campaigning for me. Me and my team have been working very, very hard. But the most important thing is that we're not taking anything for granted. So some of the numbers that have come out so far are encouraging. It's good to know that we have a broad base of support. But frankly, I've been in this business for some time, and until those votes are in the ballot box and counted, nothing else matters. So we're going to keep working really, really hard because we know that we have a bigger fight ahead of us as Liberals, which is to get ready for an election in 2022, defeat Doug Ford, and get Ontario back on track.
0: Two of the other contenders for the job, Mitzi Hunter and Michael Cotto, both have seats in the legislature. You don't. Mr. Cotto was here last week. He talked about the importance of the next leader having a seat in the legislature. How much of a detriment to you is that? So
4: first thing I would say is that Michael, Mitzi, uh, John Fraser, our interim leader, the rest of our caucus at Queen's Park, uh, which has recently grown to six, which is fantastic, with Amanda Samard coming over, um, they're doing an extraordinary job under really, really tough circumstances. My perspective is that we ended up with the result in 2018, not because we had lost touch with the building of Queen's Park. As much as I love being an MPP, we lost touch with the people of Ontario in their day-to-day lives, in their communities. And I think the job of the next leader needs to be focused on reaching out to Ontarians, listening to them, hearing from them about what they want to see on their next government, and rebuilding the party. And that's, that's what I'll be focused on. Is, is it not important for you, though, to be in the House? Uh, Look, we know that today, sadly, the Ontario Liberal Party is not an official party, doesn't have a regular slot in question period, doesn't have the same presence that we did certainly in the past when we were in opposition previously. And I think the number one job for the next leader is to make sure that he or she is in every community across this province, rebuilding, fundraising, searching for candidates, and developing, most importantly, developing a platform of ideas that will be compelling for Ontarians regardless of where they live.
0: And that will be my focus should I win in March. In terms of the ongoing labor dispute with the teachers, if you were in government, if you were a premier, how would you solve that? Would you go to the table and increase compensation above the 1%? So I think
4: the most important thing is that if you want to come to negotiations with any of your labor partners, any of your partners in any of the key sectors, you don't start off by passing legislation that kind of predetermines the outcome of those negotiations. I don't believe that's good faith bargaining. And I also don't think when thousands of students and their families are kind of caught in this flux that you shouldn't be at the table. And today, Doug Ford and his government's not at the table. So the first and most important step is to be at the table and to be negotiating in good faith and to make sure that we keep class sizes small so that graduation rates can increase, that we don't uh, don't make the online courses mandatory, that we make them voluntary, and that we stay at the table until we've hammered out a deal and that we have teachers and students in the classrooms where they belong.
0: In the end, it does really all come down to money, and I'm not suggesting the teachers are, you know, their main focus is compensation, although that's what the government has said. The question is, how do we pay for all of it? Would you run a balanced book? Would you bring the province back into balance?
4: So I know that the people of Ontario work very, very hard for the money that they earn, and they have an expectation, and rightly so, that government invests their money responsibly. I think it's important to be uh, at a budget that's balanced when that's possible, But as a parent, when I think about my kids going off to school in the morning, uh, and I want to know that they're safe and secure in the school that they're in, that their teachers and other education professionals are energized, enthusiastic, properly compensated, in that moment as a parent, I'm not thinking about the decimal points on the deficit of the provincial budget. The same thing in health care, the same thing in environmental protection. So I believe government has to be responsible, but I believe there are certain things
0: that we want to see in our society that we have to invest Is in. Is it not that precise kind of outlook that got this province into the debt problem we have now? So
4: look, at the end of the day, we're all going to learn a number of weeks what the, what the deficit looks like in this particular fiscal year. But again, if I or a loved one in my family gets sick and our entire life shrinks down to the size of a hospital bed in that moment of extreme vulnerability when we want to see a doctor or a nurse practitioner and find out what the cure is for what ails us i don't think we're thinking about the size of the deficit we want health care that works for us and we want to be at the center of that decision-making process so People work hard for the money they earn, government needs to invest that money responsibly, Uh, but to say under all circumstances that one would be slavishly attached to a balanced budget at all times, to me seems irresponsible. There's quality of life, there's the kind of investments that we wanna see, Public education, public health care, environmental protection, a strong and fair economy, I believe that can be done in a fiscally responsible way, and that's what I would pursue.
0: We're running out of time, but I do want to ask you, how do you address the legacy of the Liberal Party going forward? Yeah, so look, for 15 years we governed the province
4: and I think on balance we delivered fairly significant progress. So for example, nobody I've met in Ontario tells me they wish that we were burning coal again to produce our electricity or that they want to pave over the green belt or that they want to eliminate full day kindergarten. We were not a perfect government. Having a chance to serve in those last four years in cabinet because I believe experience is the best teacher I think positions me well to realize what we did well, what we did right, And how we gave Ontarians the impression that we were out of touch with their day-to-day concerns. We have a ton of work to do, regardless of who wins the convention in March. We need to come out of that family gathering united, stronger, and focused on one goal. Getting Ontario back on track. And the only obstacle between the Ontario we have today and the Ontario we deserve is Doug Ford, and he has
0: to go. Stephen Del Duca, great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alan. That is Stephen Del Duca, who is a candidate for the Liberal leadership of Ontario and currently is leading in the number of delegates. It will be interesting on March 7th to see how things unfold in delegated conventions. As I mentioned at the top, the worst place to be is in first, because if you cannot win on the first ballot, sometimes all of the rest of the candidates try and gang up on you and If you remember the last Liberal leadership, it was Sandra Puvitello in first and Kathleen Wynne in second. And we all know what turned out there. Also this weekend on Focus Ontario, we asked the question, is Canadian society hypocritical about race relations in this country? Are we quick to condemn racism south of the border? while reluctant to examine systemic racism here at home. Activist and author Desmond Cole tackles some of these questions in his new book, The Skin We Are In. Welcome. Thank you very much, Alan. You decided to examine the year 2017
5: in depth, why? Uh, Because I was living in that moment and thinking, I want something urgent, I want something modern, I want to focus on the challenges that we're living with as black people today. So as the year was going on, I was collecting the stories that I wanted to put in this book month by month, every month representing a year, of, or, or sorry, every chapter representing a month of the year 2017, telling different stories about black struggle and black experience in this country. Because as you say, our main move when it comes to this topic in Canada is to immediately talk about that other country south of us. and. I just wanted to see what we would talk about, what we would think about if we were only focused on Canada.
0: You talk in your book about a, a silence, often from mainstream media, that you feel that there is a blind spot in terms of covering these race relations stories. Expand on that for me.
5: Well, we're afraid to look within. I think that Canada's black population is about 3%, so it's easy in many parts of this country to not even see blackness. But we are ashamed of the realities when we start looking. Black incarceration rates, extremely high. Uh, black rates of ex- suspension and expulsion from school. Black people in the labor market occupying some of the lower rungs of the labor market. All of these things would be familiar if you were talking about, let's say, the United States. But how is it that they're so easily reproduced here? It's because we have a history of anti-blackness. It's because we have a history of enslaving black people in this country that many people don't even know happened and so it's not necessary to compare us with somebody else it's necessary to learn about our own history and to understand why those statistics that relate to black life are so prevalent and so entrenched in our country too
0: you write about black lives matters and the activism that we've seen here in toronto Expand for me, you know, your role in being embedded in that movement and then also working as a journalist.
5: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there was a point after I came back from Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, where I was covering the struggle uh, against police violence for Mike Brown in, in, in Ferguson, Missouri. And I came home and Black Lives Matter Toronto had kind of just gotten going and they started to show me that as a black journalist that I had a role to play as well. In telling stories about black life, in showing the struggles that we're going through, but then I also started feeling like I need to participate. I can't just stand on the sidelines writing and reporting. This is my fight as well. And when Black Lives Matter took over the highway, the Allen Expressway for Andrew Loku, when they demonstrated in front of the police station, when they stopped Pride, I started to realize that these were struggles for me as a black person and so I wasn't just observing or reporting I felt like I was part of what they were freeing up for us. You you write about actually
0: staying in in the tent city. I did. And and I just wondered how you squared that in terms of a journalist who who sometimes you know you want to be detached but then you you decided you wanted to embed
5: yourself. Well you know first of all I was very disappointed in tent city that our media didn't stick around. That was a more than two-week-long demonstration after a black man was killed by our police and the police officer who took his life faced absolutely no charges or other consequences. There was a lot happening in Tent City. There were a lot of black people who were having other struggles in our city that weren't about Andrew, who were coming there, who were convening, and who were sharing. I had to be a part of that. But, you know, again, on the very first day that they were at Tent City, Black Lives Matter were attacked by the police police. Outside from inside of that headquarters a lot of people missed that from the media because they weren't there because I was around I got to interview people. I got to share those stories and it gave me a bigger Sense I think a more fulsome sense of what that protest was really about and how it was resisting and creating a bigger space for us to talk about these issues
0: It is a unique perspective uh, and one that I think we all should be able to look a little closer at and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. Desmond Cole is the author of The Skin We're In, available now, thank you so much. Welcome back to the program. Hamilton police say that all levels of the force are now involved in the investigation of a shooting into the shooting that has left a seven-year-old boy in hospital. Police say the boy had been on the main level of his home when a suspect fired multiple shots into the home from the backyard. A bullet tore into the child's body. He's in stable condition with his family at his side in hospital right now. Police updating the media just a short time ago They believe the home was targeted, but the boy was an unintended victim. Here is Detective Sergeant Jim Callender of the Hamilton Police.
5: He was struck at least once. Uh, We we understand that there
0: are uh, two injuries to the child, but we're not uh, confident or we cannot confirm whether that is one projectile or it was two separate incidents. What makes you believe this was targeted? the nature of the, uh, how the events unfolded uh, lead us to believe that this residence in particular was targeted. The child himself was not a target of this, uh, this shooting. Catherine McDonald is the Global News Crime Specialist. And Catherine, I know you were at that press conference. What else can you tell me about the suspects that police are looking for?
6: Well, police are trying to get information from witnesses and surveillance to try and create a profile of the the persons of interest, as they're calling them. Uh, They they don't want to put anything out yet because they don't want that to affect Um, recollections of witnesses so they're still appealing to the public all they're saying is that the the shooter who approached the back of the house and shot we were just looking at that uh, we were in the sort of looking over a fence at the backyard they say he went into the backyard he shot into the rear of the house and then he ran back out onto the street uh, to the front of the street where he jumped into a light-colored four-door sedan and fled eastbound so they're looking they say they have a lot of surveillance and they're really uh, desperate to try and get a, a suspect description out there because they want to solve this brazen shooting.
0: What have uh, neighbors been telling you?
6: Well, there are uh, quite a few neighbors that spoke to us this morning, including one man who lives only three doors down. His name is Danny. This this man said just uh, six years ago he... he w- literally, I saw a 14-year-old boy die in his arms, a boy named Jesse Clark, and he said this, last night he was out of his house, he heard the commotion, um, he heard screaming coming from this house, so he went in and he saw this little boy who he knows, and he was lying on the floor, and he went over and he, he held him, and he said there was a bullet wound in his lower abdomen, and he thought another bullet wound on his hand, and he was heartbroken talking about how this child was saying, am I, am I going to die? And he said, I told him he was going to be okay. And um, because this man had, you know, just six years ago, witnessed another teenager on his street who died for, after a stabbing, he said this, this has really affected him. And uh, uh, the family, uh, the, the, the mother was there, a couple of other adults were there. Police say in all there were three adults and one other child. I understand he has an older sister. Uh, and so you can only imagine how difficult that would have been uh, for the family and for the children. That being said, Police do believe that the other reason this house was targeted is because they say, they didn't say how many, but some of the occupants who were home at the time were, were, are known to police. So they believe, uh, they're trying to figure out who the intended target was. Was that person in the home at the time? And because they're trying to piece together just why uh, someone would shoot into this home, not knowing, obviously, that there were children inside, or if they do, if they did, why would they do this? It's just awful.
0: The the latest information we have is that the boy is in hospital in stable condition. Is that still your understanding?
6: Yeah, and I, you know, stable doesn't mean a lot to me, even as someone who reports on crime. Uh, The officer said, we are happy to report he's in stable condition, which leads me to believe that these are not life-threatening injuries.
0: Catherine McDonald is our crime specialist for Global News, and we'll have a story on this tonight on Global News at 530 and 6. Catherine, thank you for being on the program. You're welcome. Oh my goodness, are you thankful it's Friday, I'm thankful it's Friday, but there's so much to talk about in the world of pop culture, and our regular Friday panel is with me, Laura Hensley, Global News Online journalist, is in studio, hello. Hi Alan. And Mira Estrada, the host of Cultured, which can be heard on this radio station on Saturday nights, is on the line. Hi Mira. Hello. Let's begin with this, and Laura, you pitched this one, Mirror in the Bathroom. Cameras in the Bathroom are now the new norm, and we're not talking... About bathroom selfies for your Tinder profile. This is all TikTok related.
3: Yes, TikTok creators are using the bathroom as sort of their set and studio. And so the New York Times wrote this really interesting piece about how the bathroom came to be where they're filming all their content. And it's crazy because there's so much um, interesting information about what content performs better. So if you have a cleaner bathroom, your TikTok will actually do better than if you have a dirtier bathroom. Oh,
0: really? So if you you have all your products out on the uh, on the counter that's not so good
3: that's not so good you want to be able to give viewers a sense of your personality so you can see a few brands see what your bathroom's like but you can't have a cluttered space why
0: miro why are we so focused on what's in each other's bathrooms now
7: i find all of
3: this so strange
7: like god I, I was like well i am a karen when i was reading this
0: <laughs> all right karen okay boomer All right, let's move on to the next one this is a fashion update uh, Indian designer and now uh, a bit of a star in the fashion world is collaborating with H and M. Mira, tell me about this.
7: Yeah, so this is super exciting. So Sachi is a very well-known Indian designer, um, probably now on the world stage because he is responsible for designing Priyanka Chopra Jonas's um, all of her well, a wedding trousseau.
0: Can we um, just be done with the Jonas Brothers, please? Why are they so influential?
7: Yeah, so I don't think so, but a lot of other people do. Um, but as, like, an Indian fashion lover, like, he is pretty phenomenal. Right. Um, so this collaboration is big. It's also big because this is the first time H&M has collaborated with an Indian designer. And it's not just going to be Western clothes. going can be doing starries and really cool um, Indian prints as well. My only thing is I'm, for so many of us, we're trying to move away from fast fashion, And so as exciting as this is, it's like, oh, but it's H&M, and we're trying to move away from that. Mind you, these pieces probably will be on a higher price point. You won't
0: be able to get a $6 sari?
3: (laughs)
7: Probably
0: not. (laughs) Do you feel as to this this sort of move away from fast fast fashion, as Mira said, Laura?
3: Oh, certainly. I mean, climate change is a huge issue. And we know that fast fashion contributes significantly to to climate change. And H&M is one of the worst uh, when it comes to burning clothing um, and destroying clothing. And it ends up in landfills if it's not burned. So we really have to change the way we're consuming clothes. So to Mira's point, while it's exciting to have these designer partnerships, we shouldn't really be supporting brands that are engaging in these sorts of practices.
0: But Mira, I guess your point is that, you know, in terms of Indian fashion, you don't see that in a kind of a chain like H&M.
7: No, you don't. So that's why, like, it's sort of a love-hate, like, it's a love-hate relationship because we've never seen this before, so it's quite exciting. Um, And the way I want to promote it when it comes out April 16th, which is right before my birthday, if anyone wants to get me uh, a gift, you know, these are, like, collectible pieces because they will be at a higher price point. So if you're going to buy that one thing to hold on to, buy this, because Sabi is very expensive. I will never be able to actually afford a Sabi gown. This will be that one time that I can have a piece that I can hold on to.
0: That's interesting. Let's move to the Grammys, which are on Sunday. This news about Aerosmith was weird, that Joey Kramer, who used to be in Aerosmith, actually tried to go to court to be able to say, no, I should be able to perform with the band, and the court said, don't be ridiculous. What else are we expecting this Sunday at the Grammys? Mira?
7: Okay, so we're there's some drama actually happening around the Grammys. First of all, there's gonna to be tons of great performers. Lizzo, Billie Eilish, um, Lil Nas X. But just two weeks ago, um, the head of the Grammys um was let go. There's like a lot of talk about you know, bad things, cover ups, um, mismanagement um it's it's a really tumultuous time for the grammys so it will be interesting to see how it all plays out and then when you look at this aerosmith i sort of looked at this and thought this joey kramer was um off because of a foot injury and so i sort of when i saw this that they're not letting him come back because he was like he's now recovered from his foot injury and he was played with them for like nearly 5 decades. Um I don't know to me they seem kind of jerks. I don't I don't know what's going on here, fully, but
0: Aerosmith or jerks, breaking news. Well, Laura.
3: I just think it's it's a miracle that Steven Tyler is still able to perform. Like, out of the health issues he's had, like, he's still on stage performing. He's in his 70s. And it's kind of rich that they're like, sorry, your ankle injury is too severe. You're not able to play with us. When Steven Tyler <laughs> recorded a new album, like, weeks after he had a ruptured blood vessel in his throat. And so, like, he was able to do that, yet... I, don't, I just want to know more about the criteria. Why are they, you know, saying that he is not well enough to perform?
0: It's all yeah. rock and roll. Rock and roll so rude.
7: Hashtag that.
0: <laughs> uh, Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston, this made a lot of news this week, their reunion. Tell me about that, Laura.
3: So Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt were both at the SAG Awards and Brad Pitt um, was accepting an award and he made a joke about, you know, the character he played in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was a man who gets high, takes his shirt off and doesn't get along with his wife. And, of course, the camera pans Jennifer Aniston, who's in the audience, and she's smiling and laughing and clapping. And then there was all this footage of them congratulating each other. And so the Internet kind of exploded. And they're like, are they getting back together? Are they friends? What's going on? And, honestly, I think we need to leave them alone. Like, they divorced in 2005. They split up then. And we're in almost, you know— 2020 we are in 2020 now and we're still obsessed with their relationship it's very strange to me
0: mira your thoughts you think uh, they're going to get back together that'd be a great story though wouldn't it
7: it would be but do
3: they want to get back
7: does she want to get back together also if it was flipped and like imagine this was angelina jolie saying these things like does it make you wonder how we look at men versus women like imagine it was a woman up there saying yeah it was a bad marriage and this and that like would we adore her in that same way I, it's sort of like a beautiful man we will let get away with anything
0: i will never know what that's like uh <laughs> let's move on to netflix <laughs> i in canada Netflix has added 125,000 paid subscribers. This is the most recent numbers from Netflix. That was more than the 96,000 it added in the third quarter, but a dramatic reduction versus the 218,000 that signed up in the fourth quarter of the year before. Essentially what they're saying is that Netflix, which really uh, thrives on new subs, is not gaining the way it was and a lot of that points to the ongoing war the streaming war that is coming now you've got disney plus you have all these other things but let's talk about maybe some ideas of what to watch on the darn thing because if you have the netflix you're constantly flipping the thing on going i don't know what it is that i should be watching here and laura you have some suggestions
3: I recently watched the documentary on football player Aaron Hernandez, and I am not a football fan. I don't watch the Super Bowl or care about football, but this documentary series was so impressive you, to me.
0: You watch something about sports? Like, did you just click it by mistake or?
3: No, I love true crime. I love mi- murder mysteries. I love documentaries. So I'll watch a documentary on anything. Um, and so I heard a lot of people talking about this Aaron Hernandez piece. And so I watched it all. There's three episodes. I watched them all in one sitting. And I thought it was really well done. It was incredible. It highlighted, you know, the issues within the case, obviously, that people have been following in the news, but also gave you some insight into who he was and how football really promotes this idea of like, OK, you get hurt, get back in the game, keep going. And it's such a business. And I think that for someone who doesn't really know much about football, it highlighted a whole aspect of the sport that. I didn't really know about.
0: And you also put Cheer on your list.
3: Yes, I'm watching Cheer right now, which is a docu-series on professional cheer or college cheerleading in the States, in Texas. And again, I don't care about cheerleading, but the way that they're telling these kids stories is so engaging. And I think what's interesting about about both these sports documentaries is that they highlight uh, how important... Um, sports and being an athlete is to so many kids in the States. It's really their opportunity and their ticket to go to college. And we put them in such dangerous conditions through, you know, flipping them around, putting them in helmets, crashing into each other, and if they hurt themselves, their whole career could be over.
0: Mira, and what's on your must view list?
7: Mm, So what I've been
3: watching right now is um, the
7: Kevin Hart is, I don't want to get the name wrong, is it Don't F This Up? I think that's what it is. And it's it's sort of like a docu-series about Him after his infidelities and how he goes about fixing it all, um, which is quite interesting. Um, And then I spent a lot of time literally just in that half hour searching. And then
0: going to bed. I I I I think we all do that. Like, I'm going to kill 45 minutes now just flipping around and not actually watching anything. That's
7: right. All right.
0: Mira Mira Estrada and Laura Hensley, thank you so much for being with me this weekend. Or this week. Thanks so much. Appreciate (laughs) that. The the weekend is almost here. All right. A couple of quick things. I want to mention the uh, passing of Jim Lehrer, uh, 85 years of age, the host of the nightly newscast PBS NewsHour. He had nine tenets of journalism that governed his philosophy. And I won't read all nine, but I think there are four of these that I think are so important. I want to share them with you. These are the nine tenets, or these are four of the nine tenets that Jim Lehrer uh, conducted his professional life by. One, do nothing I cannot defend. Two, cover, write, and present every story with the care I would want if the story were about me. Three, assume there is at least one other side or version to every story. And the final tenet, and this one stood out to me as I read it, I am not in the entertainment business. Interesting perspective from a longtime journalist. And with that, I now turn to cats, because I'm not in the entertainment business either, but... I do love a good cat story. God, I hate this freaking cat. The people at an animal rescue group in North Carolina now are trying to get a cat adopted, and they have decided to name it, quote, the world's worst cat. This cat turns out she's just a jerk, says the agency, amongst the cat's many dislikes, dogs, children, the Dixie Chicks, Disney movies, Christmas And last but not least, hugs. I think this cat is actually me. We'll see you again next week.